Good morning, everybody. We are, if you're here for the first time, you're just in time. We're starting a new series today, and we're starting the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. So it's going to be a short but very good series, I hope. It'll be about four weeks long, which will be uh, just right. It'll bring us right into September where we have some other plans. But until September, we're in the book of Ruth. So why don't you just uh, turn there with me? Uh, it's right after Judges, so Genesis, Exodus, bunch of other books, then Judges, and then Ruth. If you've gotten to First uh, Samuel, you've gone too far. It's a little short, uh, little short book right there, but it is beaming uh, with the grace and faithfulness of God. I am so excited to get into it. Uh, the series is called A Story of Redemption because that's what it is, page after page after page. Um, it's about the redemptive heart of God, and specifically in chapter one, we're going to be looking at God's faithfulness. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to pinpoint a, a few things, a, a different way of reading and interpreting the scriptures. You know, for most of this last year, and um, even when we started three or four years ago, we were in Ephesians, a lot of what we've been reading has been Paul and even Jesus, a lot of New Testament letters, and there's a certain way that you read stuff like that. You know, there's points being made, and you're, you're reading letters like that, like a, a letter to the church by Paul to the Ephesians, or the Beatitudes that we were in by Jesus, and they're making some some pretty straightforward points. And when you read stuff like that, there's a certain way of interpreting scripture that's pretty straightforward when you're reading prose or you're reading a personal letter and you're usually looking for a unit of thought, right? You're not just picking out proof texts or single sentences. For example, you go to Luke chapter 638 and you read, uh, give and it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over, shall men, give unto your, uh, to, uh, shall men give unto you. And you might read into that, well, if I give money to so-and-so, then God will give me 100 times more money than I gave. You know, that, that's typically what you see on television when they say stuff like that. that. But if you were to read just a little wider, the whole paragraph, the whole unit of thought, you see that Jesus is actually speaking about judging other people. Don't condemn. Don't judge other people for with the same measure that you judge others, it will be measured back unto you. And so, and so when you read uh, the gospel, certain parts of the gospel, specifically Peter and Paul, you're looking for a unit of thought. And typically that unit of thought is a paragraph, right? And so we go from paragraph to paragraph and it's pretty straightforward. In the Old Testament, I, I shouldn't say the Old Testament, in story form, uh, what's often called historical narrative. That's what Ruth is. It's a story, right? In stories, you're still looking for a unit of thought, but it's not really a paragraph. It's, it's a scene. It's a scene uh, from scene to scene. Uh, you know this if you've ever watched a movie in your life. Scenes change, and you typically know the scene changes because it's a different time or a different place. And so you'll be reading through the Gospels, and all of a sudden, it'll turn a corner and say, now, Jesus went down to Capernaum, right? There's a change of place. Or uh, in the days of the judges or the kings, there's a, a change in time. There's a different scene. And so you're going to notice, uh, just for those of you that want to know this kind of stuff, so we go through Ruth, we're going to be looking at stuff like that, looking at scenes. And I'm going to do that today. There's a four scenes. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read a scene at a time. And in each scene, the author is letting this little tiny point emerge and it's creating a storyline, and by the end of the chapter, hopefully all of those little points come together to emerge with the main point uh, that God is using to, uh, to speak to you, and I hope that comes ac across clearly, but even if it doesn't, you have enough that you need to know uh, to read Ruth by yourself, and I hope you do that as we go through this wonderful book through the, the month of August. Uh, but without further ado, I just wanna read and start with reading one of the most depressing introductions to a book I've ever read. And it just gets better from there, but first we get into the dirt. Uh, I wanna read verses one through five, starting in the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, 
and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord, and thus begins our adventure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to speak in light of that opening to the many people who are perhaps represented today who are finding themselves in the middle of a similar desperate situation. God, I pray that as we go through Ruth chapter one, through your holy word, the Holy Spirit would be here, active and present, illuminating the scriptures to align our lives and our eyes and our hearts and minds to the grace and to the faithfulness and to the power of the living God. We just thank you ahead of time. Even though we don't know what it's gonna look like, even though we don't know what it's going to say, that we trust ahead of time as God's people because of your past resume, because of your reputation, we trust you in the present. That you work all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And I pray that you would just remind us of that today. That you would just drive deeper into our hearts that our God is faithful Our God is stronger, our God is more powerful, and our God is good. We pray that that would shine deeply and that it would change the things in our hearts that have stopped believing that. You would give us hope and peace once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In an article entitled, How the World's Richest Family Went Broke, the author Will Bonner wrote about the late Cornelius, or Commodore, as he was affectionately referred to, Vanderbilt, who managed at one point in time to transform $100 that he borrowed from his mother into a $100 million fortune by the time of his death. Now, in his time, that would be the equivalent in our age to about 100 times that. It would be like $100 billion in our day. His inheritance that he left to his family was more than was held in the U.S. Treasury at that time. They amassed so much money, the first great fortune of the industrial age, and they went on to embody the excess of what was called the Gilded Age. They were something. They used their money to achieve prominence in New York's coveted social scene in the late 20th century. Members of the Vanderbilt family would go on to build some of America's most extravagant private homes that you can't go to and see yourself feel bad about yourself when you go. Homes such as the Biltmore in Asheville, North Carolina, the Breakers in Newport, Rhode Island. And they also owned 10 mansions on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, dominating the prime real estate in the world's most wealthy city. But in less than a single generation, the surviving Vanderbilts had spent the majority of their family's wealth. The Commodore's children and grandchildren tried to outdo each other in building increasingly large and lavish homes, outdoing one another. My home is bigger. No, my home is bigger. No, my home is bigger. No, my yacht is bigger and so on and so forth. They set and followed the trends of New York's high society, giving money away to any fashionable charity, holding over-the-top Gatsby-level fairy tale parties. After 40 years after Commodore's death, one of his grandchildren was even said to have died penniless. And so from symbols of the Gilded Age, they went back down to poor sharecroppers. Ruth starts with a very similar story. It starts with what appears to be a wealthy, well-to-do Hebrew family that seems to lose everything in the matter of 10 years. But unlike the Vanderbilts, this unfortunate series of events seems to come unprovoked and undeserved. The first five verses that we read, and we'll read the rest of the chapter as we go, little at a time, nope. Well, shouldn't take too long at all. But the first five verses functions almost like an introduction to the rest of Ruth. In that introduction, just want to highlight 
three clues, three or four clues, that the author is assuming that we know and understand that will shed light on everything to come, specifically on chapter one. He gives us the time, he gives us the place, and he gives us the situation that's being dealt with. What's the time? Verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, okay? Ruth comes right after the book of Judges because the the people who assembled the canon read this first line and assumed that it should go immediately after. It's referring to that time period. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you might have come away from that with a different feeling than you did reading, you know, the Gospel of Matthew or the Psalms. I don't know if this is irreverent for me to say, but it is one of the most depressing books in the Bible that I've ever read. Obviously, there's a hint of God working invisibly through different people here and there, but it it is one of the most bleak books of the Bible, and it's there to point to, to be, you know, to be blunt, the depravity and sinfulness of humanity that chooses to live apart from God's rule and reign. It's a period where there's no kings, there's just some temporary judges here and there, everyone's left to their own way. It comes right after Joshua, the highest point in Israel's history, right? They're in the land, they're in the blessing, they have the law, God's presence is there, and one of the first things that you read in uh, Judges chapter two is, now after the uh, days of Joshua, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord or what he did for Israel, and that sets the pace for everything. We see sexual violence and prejudice and killing. Some of the worst things that maybe we've ever ever experienced, certainly in the Bible, it is the most vivid. We see all of that stuff taking place, not among the Moabites or the Visitites or that uh, group of people, but among God's people it's happening. It's, it's, It's insane. Ruth is written, apparently during this time, what you might call the dark ages of Israel's history. He gives us a clue to the place. You know, they lived in Bethlehem, but there's a famine in the land to make matters worse. There's no food. There's a shade of irony in this because Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. So the house of bread runs out of bread. Elimelech, this God-fearing Jewish person, decides, I'm not gonna stay in God's country. I'm gonna go to Moab, okay, If you have read anything in the Old Testament, run across Moab at all, it is typically the country that Israel and Moab just have, they just hate each other. There's a few countries like that in the Old Testament, but Moab is just up there. They hate each other. If you were to look on a map, it is that area uh, encapsulating modern day Jordan, so it's just to the east of Israel, just or to the east of the Jordan River, just right there. And throughout the Old Testament is this incredibly hostile, violent history of animosity between these two countries. And because of that conflict, God says, hey, Israel, you just stay apart. Just don't mix. It's too much trouble. I'm gonna fix this later, but for now, just kind of stay on your side, okay? So we see Elimelech saying, no, you don't provide me enough bread. It seems like this is what he's saying or implying, God's not providing me bread in the house of bread, so I'm gonna go to Moab now. Takes his family to Moab in a very, because of their history, very dangerous place. Dark time in Israel's history, very dangerous place as outsiders to Moab. And lastly, give us a situation that comes a little bit later. Men start dying. Now that type of bereavement, uh, losing your husband, losing your sons is bad enough. But in ancient Israel, it is exacerbated by a few other cultural things. The reality is, in an ancient patriarchal society, which this was, these women, having lost their only sense of security, now in that age, men were it. If you were a woman, that was your only sense of security, that was your only sense of sustenance, that was your only sense of fitting in was through a husband. So to lose that wasn't just to be lonely and hurting, it was to be at the end of your chances of survival. One scholar writing on Ruth, Robert Hubbard, spells it out, uh, the dire nature of their predicament in this. I know this is bad form, but I'm just gonna read the entire quote, okay? Later on, Naomi goes on to describe herself as very bitter. He goes on to write of that. Naomi's fate is indeed bitter. As a widow, she lacks the provision and protection of a husband in a male-dominated ancient society. 
Further, her age and poverty effectively seal off the three options normally open to a widow. The three options would be you can go back to your parents, they'll take care of you, you get under the roof of their house. The other options would be to remarry if your husband died, find another guy who will take you even though you've already been married. Three, your children, if you have children, will support you and you'll be okay. Those are the three only options, the good ones, available to you. He goes on. Unfortunately, in view of the passage of time implied by the story, she's probably a little old, so her parents are are probably dead. If so, she would not be able to return to her father's house like an ordinary young widow. Remarriage seems improbable because she is probably beyond childbearing years. She can't possibly support herself by some trade because she has none, and besides, women simply did not do that in those days. Worse yet, third option, she's an aged widow without children. The worst possible fate for an Israelite woman. To make matters worse, not only does Elimelech die, but after, uh, after his sons are left, they take Moabite wives, his sons die, leaving Naomi and her foreign Moabite daughters to fend for themselves. Her trajectory is most likely, if you just want to get down to the meat and potatoes, what's most likely to happen to her unless something or someone intervenes is poverty, loneliness, and possibly the threat of violence since they live in Moab. Unfortunately, without those three options available, a widow would be subject to impoverishment, be subjected to begging on the street and perhaps even worse, prostitution. That was very common. If you were a woman who did not have a man or a son, and you did not have the active intervention of a good Samaritan or God, you were likely to end up on the street or prostituting yourself for money. This is the imagery that Ruth starts off with to give you a hopeless situation from the Vanderbilts to prostitution or begging on the street. That's the situation. That's the situation faced by Naomi with Orpah and Ruth not far behind. The point that emerges from this first scene is sometimes life throws you a curveball, man. Sometimes a curveball hits you straight in the face. Maybe you're listening to this today and you're, you're saying, you know, I feel the exact same way. Life just threw me a curveball. In the past month, I've spoken to people who have experienced curveballs from small to large. Spoke to a dear brother who just found out that he had glaucoma. Spoke to another person who was dealing with uh, uh, an unsolvable disease. There are people in our, our congregation and our family who've had miscarriages, uh, miscarriages is, is, and who suffer silently. Nobody knows. Because how can you, it's not really a thing that you broadcast and they suffer silently. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose this child that you've been bonding with for months and not be able to tell anybody. There are families in our church who are being torn apart some by the active hostility of the devil and spiritual warfare, others by really bad choices. There are custody battles happening here. Kids being fought over. People are losing jobs, worried about how they're gonna pay for rent. People are bereaved, they've lost family members. Family members that were much too young. They're still dealing with that right now. Others are dealing with substance abuses and still others are dealing with prison, loved ones in prison. I'm sure we could add more to that list and more and more and more. This stuff isn't happening like out there, it's happening here. You guys, us, life, throws you a curveball. Sometimes it, sometimes it hits you right in the face. And when that curveball comes, you're sometimes, often when suffering comes, you, you find yourself faced with some difficult decisions. 
It's easy to just kind of fly through life when things are going well. You can just kind of float and coast on the endorphins that life allots to you. But when hard decisions, when bad situations come, hard decisions seem to come with them. And we see a hard decision coming in the next scene from verse 6 through 18. I just want to read that. I'll just read it straight, uh, straight through. It says, Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of, your, uh, of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may become, uh, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were full grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, she said to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after her. Go with your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Daughter-in-law wins this one. Faced with a hard decision. Anytime suffering comes, have you noticed, there always seems to be a fork in the road that comes with it. Naomi here is actually doing a very noble thing, a very kind thing. This is a very kind thing in her heart to say, hey, I'm pretty much jacked, but you guys have a chance. Go back to Moab. I'm going to go to Bethlehem to find some bread, but you've got a chance to kind of get your life going back together. You're still young. You're still beautiful. You might find you know, a, a, another suitor who will, who will take you in. And Orpah and Ruth also return a, 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 noble, a noble response. They say, no, no, no. We are in this to win this. We're in this with you. We're going to go the whole distance. And Naomi starts to get fiery. And she levels like a cannon at them a series of arguments that persuades at least one of the girls. She says something to this nature. Why would you come with me? Moab is better. Go back to Moab. Second argument. Why would you wait? In other words, she drills down. She, first of all, she says, why would you come with me? There's nothing left for you here. Second argument, but even if there was a pipe dream in the making, even if I somehow got young again and married up and I found someone who would take even me, and even if in my, uh, if in my inability to have kids, I somehow had kids, even if the best possible situation unraveled for you here in Bethlehem, would you wait around? You can find something good right now. Go back to Moab. And the third one, lest they mistook her, increasing bitterness. Besides all of that, Orpah and Ruth, God is personally against me. I wouldn't come within 10 miles of this mess. That's what she says. Persuasive enough to convince at least one, and perhaps some of you. You ever hear some of these things? Go back to your old life. Moab is better. I know that you're trying to live and observe everything that Jesus taught you. You don't want to 
cut corners here and you don't want to tell this lie and you don't want to take this easy route and you don't want to fall back into sin or take this substance or medicate yourself or the list of the endless list of possibilities that would make your life a little more alleviated right now the easy way you don't have to do that you can you can just go back to moab or the second argument why would you wait even if it does get better later, even if God is as faithful as he says he is, there's an easy way out right now. Follow your impulses. Ruth, you, you can find a husband right now. You don't have to wait for me. What if it doesn't turn out the way that you thought? You ever hear stuff like that? Maybe not for a husband or a wife, but for any, any situation that you find yourself in, here's an easy way to do it. Follow your impulses. Follow what feels good. Follow your heart. I know the Bible says this. I know Jesus gave us a prescription for this, but follow your heart. Be authentic. Be sincere. As long as it's true for you, it's probably true. As long as it feels good, it's your reality. And if any of those don't work, how about this one? You're by yourself. So you better watch out for yourself. God has abandoned you. The daughters now, we'll, we'll revisit those arguments that you hear later, but this is what Ruth and Orpah are hearing, right? And they now have a decision to, to make. They come across a fork in the road and they take opposite directions. Orpah takes the left side and Ruth takes the right with a very clear manner. It says that she clung to Naomi. That's the same word used of Adam and Eve as they cling to one another. It speaks of tremendous intimate loyalty. And this verse, verse 16, when she, she, uh, she basically bursts out into a series of beautiful Hebrew poetry. This is the apex of the whole chapter. And this is a huge deal for Ruth. We might not see it because of our cultural lens because, let's face it, we love family, we uh, value family, but we can also leave family behind for things like college. Some of you are here because of that, no big deal. We can leave family behind because of a relationship. We found that hot guy or that cute girl and we leave our family, move to that place and find him. It's not bad, no big deal, but that's our cultural lens. Or we might get a job offer in Tallahassee. We move from Santa Barbara, Leave our family, go there. There's a bunch of reasons why we might leave our, our place uh, of upbringing and our family. We might even go even farther and have a falling out with our siblings or parents. We might cut them off, secede from the family, cut off all communication, never speak to them again. Happens all the time. In our culture, we might even say family isn't the strongest relational bond. You know, we might say, uh, uh, the romantic relationship is probably the strongest cultural and relational bond. That person that you fall in love with. If anything comes against that, we get hostile. If our family comes against that, hostile. So that might be our biggest relationship. But the, in the ancient Near East, the biggest bond was between brother or siblings, brother and sister, brother and brother, sister and sister. And the worst possible thing that could happen to you would be to be separated from your family. Family was everything back then. And so to leave your family for any reason was huge betrayal. Daniel Block, scholar on the book of Ruth, puts it this way. It was with radical self-sacrifice that she abandons. Think about this. Every base of security that any person, let alone a poor widow in her situation, in that cultural context would have clung to. Her native homeland, her own people, even her own gods. Everything that brought her hope in the situation she was in, she left it for this other God, Yahweh. Echoing the call that Jesus would give centuries later. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This was scandalous in Jesus' day, scandalous in Ruth's day. In other words, her decision was huge. And yet it's important for us to see that Ruth is still not the hero of the story. She's, doing a, she's making a big decision. She's not the hero. She's the helpless one. She's got no skills. She's got no degree. She's got no background. She's got nowhere to turn. In fact, the only places that she has to turn, she leaves behind on a spur of faith to follow a God she barely knows. 
She's the helpless one. Yet in her helpless act of faith, we see the hero emerge in the story, don't we? Well, who's Ruth turning to? Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Ruth's hope in the middle of a bleak situation is the God of Israel. Your God shall be my God. In fact, she turns away from what would have been for Moabites, uh, the God Chemosh, which comes up a lot in the Old Testament, to Yahweh. The poetry and the contrast between her response and Naomi's is this beautiful high point in the story. And as I'm reading this, as I was preparing for this, and just reading her response over and over, just saying, God, what's happening here? What's going on here? It just began to burden my heart, wanting personally to know, what in the world did Ruth see? That's what I most want to know in this chapter. What on earth did Ruth the Moabitess see in Yahweh? And this should be the pressing question that should concern us all in this room. What did Ruth see? She saw something that enabled her to turn away from every source of security that she knew and was familiar with. She saw something that gave her a glimmer of hope. And where did she get all of that? I don't know. She was from Moab. They hated Israel. And Naomi wasn't exactly the bastion of Christian discipleship, was she? Where did she learn about Yahweh? She certainly had 10 years to learn it, but where did she? I don't know. But somehow she got a glimpse. And that glimpse was enough to drive her away from the false idols of Moab, away even from her family and the, uh, the chance of finding a husband which would have brought her security in this life. She leaves it all in order to go after Yahweh, the true hero of the story. And I want you to contrast this with Naomi's response without being too hard on Naomi. <laughs> Naomi, we'll read the next passage. We're almost done. Verse 19 through 21. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Okay, remember, rich family, I think, leave 10 years prior with everything, with a bunch of children, leave to Moab, who does that? They come back empty-handed, all the men are, are dead, they're weeping, they're poor, and they come back to Bethlehem, and so the whole town is stirred, like, oh, there she is. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, listen to this, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi in Hebrew means pleasant. Mara in Hebrew means bitter, okay? Now we just call each other names because of the title that it refers to, like, hey, Chris, hey, what? But in, you know, an ancient understanding, they actually meant something. You were describing that person. And when you you had a name, you, you lived your whole life trying to live up to your name. And so this could literally be paraphrased in this way. Pleasant is back from Moab, yay, what is happening? Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. (laughs) Just so drama, right? This is a dramatic book. That's how she feels. Maybe that's how you feel. Don't call me. Don't praise the Lord to me, man. Don't say God is good. Don't be singing your songs to me. Call me bitter, because I feel that way right now. And specifically, how does she feel? The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. God is bitter in his dealings with me. I went away full, verse 21, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me? Now he's accusing me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. See what Naomi is doing here? She's not just the victim of a series of unfortunate events, it's God's fault. God is the one who is doing this to me. She is now setting herself up as the enemy of God. He is doing this stuff to me. The point of this scene that emerges is Naomi, uh, apart from how Ruth has interpreted this event, Naomi interprets it as uh, the suffering, as God's injustice. Isn't this so strange? This is an Israelite who knows God. Ruth is a Moabite who doesn't know God. But Ruth is the one that is like in the midst of all the same type of suffering. I want your God, Naomi. Naomi's like, God is the one who's doing all of this to us. Why wouldn't you go back to Moab and serve your gods? So crazy how this flopped. 
It's a Moabitess who puts on display the faithfulness of God in the story, not the Israelites. Maybe your situation makes it seem like God has abandoned you. It's not just a curveball. God is the pitcher. God is the one who threw a ball right in your face and you're screaming about it. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe in the midst of all you're going through, you feel like God has left you high and dry. I forgot to read verse 22. Because even in the most apparently bleak circumstances, sometimes there's evidence that God is still at work. It doesn't seem like much, but here's verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I want to tie this back into verse 6 for a second. First of all, verse 22, the beginning of the barley harvest, there's all of a sudden no more famine, right? The barley harvest was, oft, uh, was also, if you read the, uh, some of the Old Testament, specifically Exodus and Leviticus, it's a feast. It's one of the six or seven feasts that Israel celebrated. They often called it the Feast of First Fruits. It was the first fruits of the harvest. So all of this food just came up, so let's take the first fruits of it and just celebrate. So this was a, a celebration of thanksgiving. It was a celebration of a future hope. It was Israel getting together corporately to remind themselves and sing and party and drink and eat and say, God actually does take care of us, guys. Like, look, food, barley. And Ruth and Naomi come into Bethlehem greeted by that. They left the famine in Bethlehem, go to Moab, lose everything, come back to Bethlehem, and what greets them? A lot of food and a celebration referring to Thanksgiving and the future hope. The point of verse 22 is that God is present even in our sufferings. And I want to add this, because this is the point of the whole chapter, he's even present when you don't see him. Here's the beauty of Ruth in the middle of every other book around it. Judges, 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, uh, Exodus, doesn't matter. That whole, that whole collection of books are just miraculous displays of God's power. You know God is present in those books because you see it. It's either a cloud or it's a pillar of fire or it's a healing or it's, you know, birds dropping meat from the ground when you're hungry. It's like, okay, if God's going to show up, like, it's going to be pretty visible. You know why I love Ruth? It's because that is more familiar to my life than the rest of those books. Ravens don't drop, you know, filet on, on my plate in the middle of the day. Elijah doesn't send chariots of fire my way when I'm going through a hard time. I, I, I resonate more with Ruth than anyone around her. And the beauty and the hope of this book is that even when the earth isn't shaking because you see God storming in, he's actually still there and he's still faithful. Even when you don't see signs of him moving, he's actually still moving. This book is about the invisible hand of God orchestrating things for his glory and guess what, for your good. That's the beauty of the story of redemption in the book of Ruth. And we get that clue all the way back in verse six because this barley harvest didn't just happen because of natural causes. Maybe that had a part to play in it, but look at verse six. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. He's there. He's there in the midst of your famine. He's there in the midst of your bereavement. He's there in the midst of your glaucoma. He's there in the midst of your death and dying. He's there in the midst of your loss. He's there in the midst of your confusion. He's there in the midst of your job loss. He's there when you get fired. He's there when you get hired. He's there when you're struggling with rent. He's there when you're struggling with drugs and alcohol. He's there when you're struggling with pornography. He's there when you're struggling and he will not forget you. His past reputation, Ruth, is your future assurance. Now, 
this might work if all you've been dealing with is a little hunger pain. But if you're Naomi, and some of you are, and you've lost everything, food on the table is a nice touch, but it feels more like a pat on the back than anything. When you've lost your husband and your kids, and your sense of self-worth and your security, sure, I'm glad that I have something to eat in the house of bread, but a slap on the back does not a solution make for all that you have gone through. If any of us were in Naomi's shoes, and some of you are, perhaps you're asking, God, thanks for the bread, but where were you? Where were you when I needed you the, the most? What about when I was going through the worst pain of my life? See, now, thanks, but what about then when I lost everything and I was crying out? And, and why do you even allow suffering to begin with if you're a good God? If you were loving, wouldn't you do something about all of this suffering I'm going through? Now, I want to pause for a moment what's noteworthy because this is exactly what Naomi is doing. I am bitter. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter because God has brought me back bitter and empty-handed. His hand is against me and he's accusing me. So shut up and stop singing your praise songs to me. Let me be bitter because God is bitter towards me. Noteworthy in this that God never comes down on Naomi for venting. Isn't that what we talked about last week? <laughs> he never came down on Job for venting. Lest you think that he did. Several times in the book of Job we're told that in everything that Job said, he never sinned with his lips. And he said some pretty crazy things to God, didn't he? I wish I wasn't born. You can vent. God can handle your vent. But it doesn't mean that Naomi's assessment was right. And like a loving father comes down and he says, hey, lets you cry on his shoulder and he says, but I did do something about your suffering. Your God takes your suffering so seriously that he took suffering upon himself. He was not satisfied to say, I hate that you're going through that and I'll be there as a friend. He stepped down into your mess and he took it upon his own shoulders when he came down as the son of God. He put on flesh, he entered into our world, he took on our scars, he died on the cross, he dealt with everything, so much so that the author of Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who doesn't know what we're going through, but he sympathizes with our weaknesses and yet without sin. Isaiah chapter 53 verse four through five says, surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. And then, almost in a hint reminiscent of what Naomi was saying, it says, we consider Jesus punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. We thought Jesus was brought, by, uh, brought back empty and dealt with bitterly by the hand of his father. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Jesus, and by his wounds we are healed. And we will see in the coming chapters that God, like a nourishing father, comes and takes care of Naomi, and the scene is whipped around, and she actually becomes more blessed than when she started. But in the present, in the bleakest moment, she's still not alone. My friends, neither are you. The weight of human sin was placed upon the one who was dealt with the most bitterly. Like a scapegoat, Christ, for all who believe and follow him, takes the punishment and the weight of our sin and destruction that we don't have to bear. But it wasn't just suffering that he went through. It wasn't like, okay, I'll be in this with you to hold your shoulder. He doesn't just go through suffering. That would be enough, I think, but here's my last thing about the barley harvest, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. The barley harvest, or the Feast of First Fruits, comes right after another feast, the Feast of Passover. 
It's kind of like Easter where you never know what date it's going to land. It might be in March. It might be in April. Who knows? Sometimes it could be a couple days after Passover, sometimes a week. One particular year, the year that Jesus dies, it comes three days after Passover. We're told that Jesus dies on Passover. And as he predicted, he rose again three days later on the Feast of First Fruits. The feast that was there to tell God's people that there is hope. When he rose from the dead, he gave the Feast of First Fruits its most significant saying, I am your hope. I am your hope. Unless you think that I am taking too much liberty with first fruits, it was Paul who said it first in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is no accident. Paul is a Jewish Orthodox Pharisee. He knows exactly what he's saying. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam we all died, but in Christ all will be made alive. Each in turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong in him. What is he saying? God didn't merely suffer with us out of empathy. He actually took, us, took it a step further and did what Ruth and Naomi and you and me and everyone in this building was unable to do for themselves. He died, yes, but he also rose from the dead and freed us from the bondage of sin, freed us from the torment of death, freed us from the suffering of our own hopelessness and gave us a chance to live on. The point of this is that our suffering doesn't have to last anymore. And even though it lasts right now, there will be an end to it. And so the question left to us in chapter one is what do we do in the present when we get a curveball to the face? If we were to take all of these points and put them together, we'd have to say something to this nature. Suffering seems to make us face the forks in the road of our faith. And I think God means it to do that. Suffering often forces us to take our faith a little more seriously. Have you ever noticed you don't think as deeply about your faith when things are going well? It's often in the suffering that you go to the Psalms, right? You're like, God, where are you? Suffering forces us to either trust him or walk away. It's a clear delineated line. To be all in or all out, trials test our faith and in that way God says it's good. The sufferings aren't good, but it's good for you to go through them. We hate hearing that, but at least there's a reward out of it. The apostle Peter, who suffered immensely, would say, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed to you. Though you have not seen him yet, you love him. And even though you don't even see him now, right, he's invisible. Where is he in the, pre in the present suffering? Even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? First of all, just stop right there. In the this is what he's saying. In the midst of your greatest suffering, you can experience inexhaustible joy. Why? Comma, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. In other words, Peter is saying, you can, in the midst of your suffering, not have to waste your suffering. God can actually use it to get you to the finish line better than when you started. The gospel, Christ's finished work, answers all of the arguments that come your way. I know you have a lot of arguments, I just wanna answer those first three. For the one that says, go back to your old life because it's easier, the gospel says, there is no old life, bro. <laughs> you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. To the lie that says, just do what feels good now. Follow your heart. Do what feels good now. The gospel says, but we run to receive an imperishable wreath. <laughs> so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under strict control. 
lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. I see the reef. And I'm not just gonna do what feels good now. To those of you that say, watch out for yourself, the gospel says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. To the lie that says you've been abandoned by God, the psalmist says, my father and my mother may forsake me, but the Lord will take me up. It's often in suffering that we get the deepest revelation of God's faithfulness. And for Ruth, all it was was a glimpse. All it takes is a glimpse. Perhaps some of you need a glimpse this morning. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up as we move into a time of singing. Remind you of the call of the Christian on your life. And the person who maybe you're not a Christian, you don't even know what that means, you're just thinking through this stuff. The call of Christ on every individual person in the world is to, to give up their lives to follow him. That means to forsake everything, to take the narrow path. That might include forsaking comfort, safety, and security. Ruth forsook all of those things. Why though? This is a question I want you to wrestle with today. Why did she do it? It's because she saw the faithfulness of Israel's God. She saw something in God worth pursuing over everything else that was enough to tie her down in hope and peace. Question I wanna leave you with this morning is do you see God in the same way? Brothers and sisters, don't leave this building without seeing spiritually. And if you don't see him spiritually, get on your face and beg. Knock, ask, beat, and say I'm tired. I got smashed in the face with many curveballs, and to be honest, God, I feel like you're bitter towards me. Show me that I'm wrong. Show me that you're not. Show me who you are. Let's all do that. We'll take it from there. In Jesus' name, amen.